Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the power of sacred friendship. And perhaps starting with the answer to a question, what is love? Just a few years ago, when my son was in junior high school, I as a parent got some homework. And the homework was collaborating with my child that he had a question to answer and I had a question to answer too. And the combination of the, you know, the work we did together would be his homework. And the questions that he was asked were as follows. What is love? How did you know you were in love? And what advice would you give to other people who think they are in love? I won't argue with the wisdom of asking kids who are going into that junior high school, high school age uh, to think about the answers to these questions and to get answers from people that they know and that they trust. And I take homework pretty seriously, and there's very few things in this world I take more seriously than these particular types of questions. I believe I mentioned in the 20th Inappropriate Conversation, talking about chapter and verse, and specifically talking about C.S. Lewis, what a strong influence Lewis was in the way that I decided to answer these questions. And I think before I can talk at all about sacred friendship, I think I need to lay down a map. And the map is probably going to come from this particular set of homework. To the question, what is love? It's a hard question, particularly because there are many types. C.S. Lewis referred to Plato when he defined and identified four distinct types. Parental affection, uh, the parent-child instinct, friendship, involving either same or different genders, romantic love, or what I would refer to as dating and marital relationships, and agape, which you can hear referred to as unconditional love in a, you know, sort of a loose perspective. Some people refer to love as a feeling, but it is much more. Feelings like joy and desire are there, but love can be better defined as the way we respond to those feelings. It is more intentional and more intense because it makes a commitment out of all those feelings. That is true of all types of love, our relationships with family, friends, spouses, and God. How did I know I was in love? I'll grant that love often takes people by surprise. Feelings may sneak up on you, um, feelings like joy and devotion. But knowing that you are in love involves understanding your own responses to those feelings. At what point do stepbrothers and stepsisters really become family? When does an acquaintance uh, change from being somebody you know uh, into becoming a friend, the way we tend to use the word friend? These questions involve our responses to our feelings. In the same way, when do we decide that we're in love in a romantic way? I knew I was in love with my wife years before we were married. I realized that I wanted to be with her all the time, and that the feelings differed from friends or family, and I could see forever, and that picture of a life with her kept growing more and more clear. So, what advice would I give to other people who think they are in love? Well, first, it's important to understand that love is infinite and powerful. Sometimes we oversimplify and try to make love easy or small. Like God, though, love itself is beyond our comprehension. Our current culture fails to understand that there are different types of love. Too often, people suggest that there is a scale, a progression. You hear this in terms like, more than a friend. I dismiss that claim. 
Our love for family is different in many ways than our love for friends. Friends aren't just another part of family. Likewise, our love for friends is different than romantic love. We say this again. The expression more than a friend tends to offend me. I believe that our love for friends is different than romantic love. My experience has taught me that it is wrong to view romantic love as the ultimate expression. Truthfully, that's agape, which is eternal and unconditional. Romantic love has a distinct place, separate from family and friends. But agape love is God's love, and is, as such, it trumps all things. God has the ultimate place here, crucial inside all expressions of love. At some future time, when we no longer need to speak of time, perhaps, I pray that we will understand this much more fully. The love between family members is different and unique in the nature of the family unit. And I realize that's kind of a circular logic, but there's something in the nature of, of the way a family is organized, whether it be you know, grandparents and grandchildren where there's no parents in the middle, whether it be uh, all blood relations, you know, sort of a nuclear family, or whether it be a matter of a family built through a process of adoption and, and foster care. It doesn't matter. Inside that family unit is how we understand that love. To jump forward a little bit and to talk a little bit about marital relations, which is not at all what my focus is going to be on today, that also has a family focus. To understand the dating romantic type of love, there's going to be a sexual component there, and that sexual component tends to be the genesis of what becomes the larger family unit, hence the connection. But I do not believe that we only love people if we were born into a relationship with them, and I don't believe that we only love people if there's something in it sexually for us. And I don't believe that our, our drive as a species to reproduce is the only necessary physiological explanation or even psychological explanation for love, that there's something more going on with what happens when two particular people make a lifetime commitment to each other in a dating romantic sense, and what I refer to as the dating marital relationship. Friendship is distinctly different from that, and it's possible that there may be you know, multiple combinations of friendships that none of which have a family relationship to drive them in the traditional sense of the word, and none of them have any sexual component whatsoever. And it is in this area that I talk about sacred friendship. I sometimes offend family members, and I don't know how I can talk about this topic without running that risk. I have members inside my own family who get uncomfortable because they don't accept the logic at all. That to them, male-female relationships are always about a, a potential dating process. And I think probably my parents, if they were honest with me, would say that the, the minute I said I do, and my wife and I were a married couple, that all feelings, all relationships, all history, all ties with any of my friends who happened to be female stopped instantly and died that day. Because it was a big race to the altar and they were the losers. And all my history and ties and feelings and relationships with my male friends would, of course, carry forward because you've got to have friends. Uh, that sort of logic that I completely and totally reject. I remember, you know, within the first year after we got married, and my wife was working an internship, so she had crazy hours and, you know, kind of finishing up school in a, an apprentice kind of a role. And I had crazy hours at the beginning of this job because the newspaper business was just you know, not a solid economic model from my perspective when it came to uh, employer schedules and family work-life balance. It just wasn't a good, it wasn't a good mix. And when you finally get three, four, five days off in a row, uh, you take it. 
because in the newspaper that I was working at at the time, it wasn't all unusual to have 50, 60 days consecutive with no time off or to work a 75-day stretch with only two days off and those days not even back-to-back. And even for a period, I remember working double shifts on that kind of schedule where you'd work 10, 12 days solid, but it was you know 16-hour planned 16 hour days where you'd you'd go in and do quote unquote your regular job from maybe 4 p.m. to midnight then you'd take an hour off grab a bite to eat somewhere and come back in from 2 or 2 30 a.m. until you know 8 or 9 in the morning and your day just becomes work and sleep and work and sleep at that point and at some point along the way I had the opportunity to go back to college to visit some friends to just kind of hang out you know to to leave the you know the professional newspaper environment with its pluses and minuses and to hang out at the college newspaper for just you know for just a weekend to see the friday deadline happen to hang out with old friends to go out and you know have some have some fun and to really again connect for the first time in many months with these friends uh, something like a process of may or june having not seen them except for letter mail cuz there was no real internet back then for us until february ish and my mom's reaction to this trip that I was taking was, what does he think he's up to? And I actually spoke those words to my wife. What in the world does he think he's doing? And her issue was that the person I was primarily going to see and the person who was arranging the things that we were going to be doing, the places we went, the places we ate, the friends who were invited, was a female friend. And again, in my, my parents' mindset, that whole female friend concept just didn't make any sense. And the worry, of course, was that this was somehow a sexual thing because you've got strong emotional connection with a lot of history to somebody of the opposite gender. You're, in my case, clearly attracted to the opposite gender. The, so that's kind of where they would perceive the problem as cropping up. And the issue that I had was that that entire generation seemed to not understand the concept of sacred friendship. And the way I saw the evolution of sacred friendship happening was essentially that in the late, late 1960s and throughout the 70s, we saw a lot of people engaging in really reckless sexual behavior. And you didn't need a whole lot of provocation, it seems. I wasn't of the age at the time. But when you read, when you look at the culture around you, it seems like you didn't need a lot of provocation to hop in the sack with somebody. And coming out of that, in the generation that I was in, it really became necessary to say, listen, first off, you can't sleep with everybody. And maybe the driving force behind that was something as comparatively benign as herpes. When you compare the fear of herpes as a sexually transmitted disease to the fear of AIDS as a sexually transmitted disease. But somewhere during the course of the time that I was in college and after, it really became apparent that you're, you're not going to sleep with everybody. It was probably a ridiculous idea to begin with. How do you go about the process of kicking people out of the proverbial sack? Not that they're in the sack with you, but they could be. How do you limit that? And for some people, it just simply meant, let's try to go back to this 1950s male boarding school model where guys are your friends. They're the ones that you, you drink with, you party with, whatever. And girls are all potential suitors, that kind of logic. And I don't think that works in the modern era. I think that among the other things that were completely broken down in the transition between the 50s and 60s and 70s was that idea that men and women can't possibly have anything to offer each other aside from their bodies. And now when I put it in that terms, when I word it that way, it sounds ridiculously crass and absolutely wrong. And you'll be, you know, hard, hard fought to find anybody who would say that that's really what they believe. And that's a point of view that they're defending. They may believe it, but they believe it with a certain degree of embarrassment. I think we're better than that. I think we came through the period of time with what we would call sexual revolution to a point in time where men and women can be friends and can offer each other something in friendship. 
but it only works, at least in the model that, that I've personally experienced, it only works if that friendship has a sacredness. So I guess if there's a gist to this entire episode, and it's probably not the only one I'm going to hit on this topic over time, if there's a gist to it, it's pretty much this. I believe that men and women can be friends. I believe we have to figure out what it is that means. And the only way we're going to successfully navigate it is to understand the concept of sacredness. So this is going to be all about sacred friendship. And the heart of that is a concept that I would like to discuss called mirroring. And mirroring goes something like this. Whenever I'm you know, dealing with a man in a male-to-male friendship, in a male-to-male acquaintanceship even, it's really ultimately going to come down to some sort of competition. And I think a lot of people who've seen this behavior in men see it as a failing of masculinity. I'm going to wait and talk about masculinity perhaps next week. But I don't necessarily see it as a failing because I think that it's, it's only natural. Natural because you're comparing yourself to something that's like yourself. It's, a, it's an identical image. It's a competitive image. What you can get from intersexual friendship, friendship between the genders, or sacred friendship as I like to call it, is a mirroring, an opposite image. And my, my thoughts on this go something like this. We really can only know ourselves if we look at ourselves from a benchmark that is not ourself. You know, to understand how fast your car is going if your speedometer breaks down, to get a sense of the velocity that you're traveling moving down the road, you don't try to gauge your speed by looking at anything else that's inside the vehicle. Because you in the vehicle and the other person in the vehicle may not be the same as each other, but you've got this common velocity. It's not a benchmark. To get a sense of how fast you're going, you need to benchmark yourself against something outside the car. Now, maybe it's convenient, like on a major highway, maybe you have road markers that have a consistent distance between each other. So you can really do a pretty good job of, of getting a sense of your velocity. But even if you're just benchmarking yourself against trees or cows you're passing on a, on a farm along the way, something that's not you is how you can do it. And that's this idea of mirroring, to say maybe we only know ourselves if we understand ourselves in relationship to something that we are not. Intersexual friendship provides this in a way that intrasexual friendship cannot. Here in a minute, I'm going to provide some, what I think is some solid psychological theory for the, uh, for the approach that I've used, that I've had to go seek an understanding of what was happening inside my life and in my mind and in my relationships with others. And I think that there is a fairly good documentary evidence that the kinds of things I'm describing have a great deal of validity. But before I do, I think I probably want to give you a sense of what's at stake here, because there's this competing idea. The older generation would think that what's at stake is that you're not making your family relationship the most important thing, that you're replacing in some ways the things that you would rely on from your sisters and brothers and your parents, and you're going outside that and really relying on friends for a lot of support in your emotional and intellectual development. And from a wife's perspective, or a husband if you're a woman, you know, their perspective might be that, hey, you know, this is a dangerous thing because now you've got this other person with, with whom you've got this sort of intense historical relationship and future commitment. And what does that all mean? And I guess what I would say is that, that there's no rejection that could possibly be greater than divorce, at least in my understanding of where I fit in the world, the way I've been raised, the things I've observed from others, that that is just about the most devastating rejection that you could possibly imagine. I'm tempted to say that it's not a rejection because of the sacred ground that you're on, but because of what has been built on that ground. That 
you know, a marriage relationship that forms in an alcoholic stupor in Las Vegas in a, in a drive through chapel does not have the same devastating consequences when it falls apart as a multi-decade marital relationship does, with or without kids. I think once you've built something on that foundation of that marital relationship, the destruction of that is going to be devastating. Contrast that with the initial kind of rejection that can happen in the realm of friendship. And I'm going to make a a somewhat crass analogy here, but kind of bear with me. I'm going to say that the rejection of this kind of friendship has a more overarching feeling to it than the rejection of what I might describe as a come on or or an initial line. You know, if you're trying to get to know somebody and you've got a strong sense that, hey, this is supposed to be a friendship, that's what this is about. Compare that to what it's like if you just walk up to a girl that you, you meet at a dance and you approach her. That rejection, in the case of the dating marital situation, is a little bit like somebody saying, um, no thanks, I'm not interested in doing that. Doing that maybe in the sense of dance, maybe in the sense of dance in a much more broad terminology if we advance the setting to a bar and make the whole circumstance more of a one-night stand scenario. But it's still rejecting you in the sense of you in that behavior, you in that activity. Whereas the rejection in this particular form of friendship that I'm talking about has the potential to be far more devastating because what you are saying no to is all of that person. You know, that person is offering a little bit different kind of relationship. It's a relationship where there's no, there's no payoff from a sexual perspective. There's no foundation being laid from a family perspective. It is simply at this point and in this time, there's an interpersonal connection between us that I would like to, you know, explore. Saying no to that is saying no to that personal connection, not necessarily saying, again, no to the dance, no to the movie, no to the dinner and a movie, or whatever might happen afterward. So you get all of that potential devastation right up front. So I suppose I'm going to make maybe three distinctions here. There could be more, but I'm going to make three of them. There is a sense of relationship that has this, this sacred interpersonal quality to it. There's a relationship that has a practical, um, religious sort of uh, man and woman becoming one flesh quality to it that this friendship does not have any of. And then there's the other kind of relationship, which can be men and women, it can be men and men, it's certainly uh, parent to child, in the sense of what uh, you might call shadow. Um, I used to call it the little man on my shoulder, someone who is there uh, to tell you when you probably, you really need to sit down and shut up. <laughs> you know? Now, you can get that kind of information from your wife, no doubt. I'm going to cover some ground here in a minute, which talks about um, spouses being the best kinds of shadows. And without any question, you can get it from your parents. Your friends can perform that role as well. But there's a difference between the friendship and the marital relationship and this sort of shadow. And I'm not going to deny the fact that all three of those are types of friendships. And one of the problems that I have when I try to communicate my ideas on this topic with others is that as a society, we use friend to mean all those things. If there's a guy I play basketball with on a regular basis, and that's really all we do is we, we meet at the gym, we play basketball, he's a friend of mine. And, you know, my wife, of course, is a friend of mine in a way that no one else can even presume to try to be, uh, in a way that in, in my mind is so different that it's almost ridiculous to compare the two relationships I've described so far using the same term, that friend doesn't work for both of those things. They're, they're that different from each other. But I also would say that the relationship to the sacred friendship person, the intersexual friendship type person that I'm going to describe in more detail as we go, that that also doesn't have enough in connection with the husband wife thing for there to be any perceived competition between the two ideas. And it also is very different 
if only from this mirroring perspective from, you know, the person, you, the guy you go jogging with or, you know, the person that you, ser- you serve on a church committee with or whatever, it, it's a different thing altogether. So I can't get much further here in trying to describe this without going into theory. So if this turns out to be perhaps the most intellectually burdened episode I've ever done. I apologize, but really to talk about this any further the way I want to, I'm going to have to bring in our different drummer, Carl Young. First, even before I try to describe him and his thought and how it applies to this topic, let me give a direct quote from a paper that he wrote called Anima and Animas and uh, how it applies to the things I've described so far. This is a direct quote. Woman, with her very dissimilar psychology, is and always has been a source of information about things for which man has no eyes. She can be his inspiration. Her intuitive capacity, often superior to man's, can give him timely warning, and her feeling always directed toward the personal, can show him ways which his own less personally accented feeling would never have discovered. Here, without a doubt, is one of the main sources for the feminine quality of the soul. But it does not seem to be the only source. No man is so entirely masculine that he has nothing feminine in him. The fact is, rather, that very masculine men have, carefully guarded and hidden, a very soft emotional life, often incorrectly described as feminine. A man counts it as a virtue to repress his feminine traits as much as possible, just as a woman, at least until recently, and Young is writing in the post-World War II era, a woman considered it to be unbecoming to be mannish. The repression of feminine traits and inclinations naturally causes these contrasexual demands to accumulate in the unconscious. No less naturally, the imago of woman, the soul image, becomes a receptacle for these demands, which is why a man, in his love choice, is strongly tempted to win the woman who best corresponds to his own unconscious femininity, a woman, in short, who can unhesitatingly receive the projection of his soul. Although such a choice is often regarded and felt as altogether ideal, it may turn out that the man has manifestly married his own worst weakness. That is Carl Jung from a paper he wrote called Anima and Animas. And I'm going to refer to the concepts of anima going forward, whether directly or not, because it is in this area that I think Carl Jung answers some questions. Now, I personally feel like I didn't make what Jung might describe as the mistake of marrying somebody who represents an animatic projection of my soul. I think I've married somebody who is complementary in the best ways, but does not necessarily represent for me some compensation for my worst character traits. And you see this happen a lot. He's not identifying something wrong. In many, many dysfunctional relationships, what you see is marital conflict because each partner represents for each other what they dislike most about themselves, and it doesn't work. And I've described before for friends and family, trying to help them to understand how these intersexual sacred friendships differ from the marital relationship is that in the intersexual friendship, you do have this very, very close mirroring where the similarities are um, in some ways alarmingly real. And you wouldn't want to marry that. You wouldn't want to marry that any more than you would describe positively to somebody who angrily told you to go F yourself. Carl G. Young was a contemporary, slightly younger, but nevertheless a contemporary of Sigmund Freud. They did some collaborative work for a period of years, and um, Young is credited as being the founder of analytical psychology. We think of Young for many more things, though. He's given a lot of credit in the areas of archetype, collective unconsciousness, synchronicity, 
Um, many of us have probably taken Myers-Briggs type indicators, uh, which use the concepts of introversion and extroversion in a complex combination to reveal certain things about our personal traits and how we might interact with others. Um, I've done it a couple times in a business setting, but you can imagine that sort of um, application happening in almost any large group setting. These are many of the things that Carl Jung has handed down that, you know, even 50, 60, 70 years later, are still an important part of, of how we do what we might describe as um, psychology in the lower P sense of the word today. My admiration for Jung has a lot to do, though, with his theories about anima and animus. And these were developed you know, later, pretty much between 1945 and 1951, give or take, using a combination of his exploration of dream, dream interpretation, but also the process of guiding dream imagery and forcing dream projections. And what he found during his personal exploration and some case studies was that for men, the most powerful dream responses tend to be women and not solely in what you might think of as a sexual sense that there is a relationship between male and female or masculine and feminine, which has led him to get awfully close to the concept that you could almost in lay terms describe as saying that perhaps every man uh, by his nature from a gender perspective has a feminine soul. And likewise, every woman from her gender nature has a masculine soul. And it's in this relationship where he uses the terms anima and animus for the male and female correspondingly to describe the concepts which I have personally experienced in my life as sacred friendship. I will continue to quote Young pretty liberally throughout this uh, particular show. But one more thing I want to do before I leave the different drummer segment and kind of give you a feel for one of the things I find so appealing about Young's thought that as a thinker, uh, there's a lot of depth here. There's no way to go into it in a different drummer section. And there's going to be some things I like and some things that I don't like. And, you know, one of the things that I do like is the nature of him and religion. I'm going to quote uh, Wikipedia here in a line that says, Young is often considered the first modern psychologist to state that the human psyche is by nature religious and also to explore it in depth. So he wasn't the first to analyze dreams, but he was among the first to introduce both Eastern and Western philosophy and to look at the concepts of interpersonal relationships and the soul from a religious perspective. And this may not be shocking and surprising. He was born into a religious family. His father was a rural pastor in the Swiss Reformed Church. Um, so he has a pretty good background as far as that goes. I'm dealing with the ideas of a psychologist here, who, unlike some of his contemporaries, was not openly hostile to religion. And as you might imagine, that's going to make him a very attractive candidate for um, exploring the ideas of these interpersonal relationships for me. And it's one of the things that helps make Carl Jung a different drummer. Should I change the names to protect the innocent? The question's on my mind. As we'll see as we get to the end of my thoughts on this topic, I'm going to deal with a lot of feelings and emotions I have for people that I don't necessarily speak to every day. There are relationships that I, I have, that I interact with people, with the strength and the power of understanding sacred friendship that does make it very easy for me to be very open. But some of the people that have been the most influential in my life, I haven't seen or spoken to in quite some time. So whether to use their names, even from a first name perspective, is a question that I haven't yet answered to this, to this very moment. And here I am about to talk about it. Let me give you the setting. 
It's the last year of college for me, and we're moving in, unpacking cars, putting stuff back in apartments. In my case, I had the blessing of being in the same apartment for a couple of years in a row. That didn't always happen. And uh, while we're doing this, we're, we're meeting who our new neighbors will be and getting to know some people. And uh, in the course of you know just casual conversation, setting stuff up, I was gripped by this overwhelming feeling that I really hadn't had since high school that said, you know, something big's happening here. And I couldn't see what it was. There was no indication. But I just really spent several weeks with this really overpowering notion that I would actually describe to people who I knew well enough that they could take it. (laughs) I was on the verge of something triumphant. I mean, something big was going to happen. And it was either going to be big for me or big about me. I I was either it was going to be relationship based. I was certain of that. And it was either going to be that I was going to, you know, step in for somebody when they really needed me or somebody was going to step in for me when I really needed them. And I had a hard time picturing having that need. You know, I was in a stable situation. Uh, graduation was, you know, almost totally assured. There was really no question that I was going to graduate with a really good, really good grade point average. Getting a job didn't seem to be that big of a question. The only, the only question was where. And in the midst of all that, I couldn't figure out how I was going to be in any sort of peril. So I began looking around and paying attention and trying to answer the question in a, in a rational way, I guess is the way I would word it, in a human way for what was going to happen. And the problem with this is that this particular kind of relationship, whether it's driven by the Holy Spirit or whether it's driven by something in our collective unconscious that's even beyond your ability to know in the traditional sense of the word know, um, whatever that was, it was truly going to be beyond me. There was no way around it sneaking up on me somehow. And the two things that I took, first off, right before the uh, winter break and right after the winter break, before the winter break, uh, we were going to be going on a a ski trip. At some point, there was going to be a a holiday. We were going to be going to visit relatives in Colorado. If you're visiting relatives in Colorado in December, it doesn't make sense to not take advantage of the slopes. But I had this really overpowering, irrational notion that I was going to fall off the lift. I don't know. I can't explain it. It didn't happen. But I really had this overwhelming sense that that falling off the lift was just a matter of time, that it was inevitable somehow. When I got back from that relatively uneventful winter break, having not fallen off a ski lift or anything of that nature, I did encounter somebody who I'd worked with, who I'd known for several months, who I didn't have a good relationship with. It wasn't a bad relationship. There was just no relationship. You know, there's people in your life that you know you're not going to click with. There's people in your life that you know you are going to click with. Maybe you, you know it because you're clicking with them already. And then there's everyone else. And somebody from inside that crowd of what I would describe as everyone else just started showing up. She was part of conversations. Some changes in the way the school paper's newsroom was organized put me in the same group. I was leading the staff that that person was a reporter in. That was kind of uh, her beat was part of my overall responsibility. And it turns out that over Christmas break, she had gone on a ski trip and she had fallen off the lift. It's this sort of stuff going on that made me sense, you know, something bigger than me is going on here. And that whether there's a friendship that's going to form in this situation, I'm going to be an honest person. I'm going to tell the truth, and I'm going to reveal the fact that, yeah, I've, I've had a couple of pretty odd sort of premonition-type visions that weren't about me. And uh, guess what? seems like they might have been about you. And for better or worse, as it turned out over the course of, of a few weeks of just kind of getting to know each other better, hanging out, double dating, actually, in one, one or two cases, that she'd had some sort of similar feeling that this was not just me. This was just, this wasn't just an isolated thing. And it wasn't just 
well, it wasn't wrong in the sense that I was sensing something that wasn't really there. So that friendship really formed and meant a lot to me, but also helped, I think, you know, guide her through a very difficult time that she was having being a year or two younger. And, you know, and I was going to graduate, get married and go off to work. She was still going to be in that school environment. That's kind of the beginning of the story. When the actual conversation took place, it didn't take place as rationally and, and in an organized way as I described it. It took place at a party. It took place at a party where I was the designated driver, which is good, but it took place you know, in a situation where things were just a little bit more out of, out of hand than that, and uh, the conversation grew organically from that situation. Now, in, in the interest of full disclosure... I went into that party also with a strong sense that something was going to happen. And for the first time, I was connecting the dots between the beginning of the school year and that sense that something big was going to happen, but I didn't know what and I didn't know when. With now, a sense that this party was coming up. So this is Wednesday, Thursday, middle of the week. But on Friday night at this party, that is when this thing that I've been sort of anticipating for months is going to occur. And part of the reason that I knew it was kind of in response to something that was going on in the in the greater community um we were in the newsroom we were all familiar with the the kind of the funny news story of the day there's always going to be one and in some ways i think it's very healthy for a newsroom to latch on to the things that are humorous because so many things in the news business can get deathly serious otherwise and our funny news story for the day was that a televangelist from tulsa oklahoma named oral roberts had been in conflict with some of the local hospitals and with some of the the zoning commission type folks because he wanted to build a hospital on the campus of his university. Now, my feelings for the uh, Oral Roberts theology are that it is not a Christian theology in the traditional orthodox sense. I would agree with Hank Hanegraaff, the host of the Bible Answer Man broadcast, that there's a lot of aberrant Christian views going on there. And so I was not a fan and was also not a fan of the idea that somebody would build a hospital for what I consider to be perhaps his own vanity, his own hubris, um, because he wanted it to be on his university. And, you know, a lot of the conversations going on in the city, if you were reading the reports that were coming across the AP wire, were that um, they were getting pretty good testimony that the hospital beds that were already there were sufficient to cover the needs of the of the community, and that Earl Roberts had basically said that he was going to throw this particular facility and its potential for miraculous healing open to the world, and especially to people who didn't otherwise have health care. And the local prediction, and the prediction in the newsroom was, you're going to attract a lot of people to a town that already had hospitals available to this hospital that didn't have a viable economic model, this hospital was not going to survive because not only did it not have a viable economic model to begin with, but it was attracting people who were unable to pay or who were uninsured, which was going to compound the problem. And then all of these people who weren't already part of the community were going to need hospital beds that were at the time sufficient for the rest of the community, but might not be sufficient any longer if this new hospital failed completely and all those people needed beds in the existing locations that you would ironically go from having the right number of beds to too many beds to too few beds just because of that confluence of events. So to make his case that this was going to happen, that it was inevitable to happen, you can imagine how a televangelist might handle this. And if I just pause for a minute and let you mouth the words, maybe we can say them together. God told me to build a hospital here. That was the logic. And when I heard it, the first thing that I thought was the Dead Kennedys song, I Kill Children, which starts with a you know, couple of guitar riffs and then the lead singer sarcastically saying, God told me to skin you alive. 
to be honest, I didn't see a whole lot of difference between God told me to skin you alive and God told me to put a hospital here. In fact, Oral Roberts took it one step further. What he said was that he had a vision outside of his office of a 900-foot Jesus Christ standing in the South Tulsa, you know, skyline and pointing to a place 900 feet in the air that was supposed to be the top of this new building. And that's why this building needed to be, I don't know, 77 stories tall, whatever. You know, there was all the, the biblical 777 imagery. I'm not sure where the 900 feet came into it. But if you know anything about alternative rock in the early 1990s, you're going to recognize where this is coming from. Because Oral Roberts' proclamations, which again created some newsroom reaction, and to be honest, some newsroom humor, ultimately evolved into an alternative rock group called MC 900 Foot Jesus and DJ Zero. So the story I'm telling if you're of the right age, it's probably going to be somewhat familiar to you because, again, it made headlines that resonated beyond just the Tulsa, Oklahoma community. So I made the response to my friends that he wasn't the only one who was getting a vision and that I had a vision that at this particular weekend on Friday night before the night was over, in fact, on Saturday morning, that God was going to tell me something I needed to know as well and that the revelation was going to occur somewhere between one o'clock and two o'clock in the morning. So technically Saturday morning not Friday night. I won't go into too much detail about how that vision actually came true and that what might have been intended as a sarcastic comment actually had some relevance and some reality to it. But I will hopefully along the way here refer to the way that conversation happened. Because if you've never had this kind of friendship before, if you've never had that moment where you thought, hang on a second, this is male-female, this is not sexual, but this is nevertheless, for want of a better word, really important, how does that happen? How does that happen when you're 20-something and everything is sexual, right? We'll get into that here in just a moment. For now, it seems like the right time to drop in uh, a quick note about promotional advertising. I've been dropping promos into these inappropriate conversations since the very beginning. And I think anybody who wondered why I've placed such an emphasis on songs for Jenny probably figured it out on the New Year's Eve um, show I released a couple of weeks ago that that wasn't chosen by mistake, that I feel very strongly about that project and, and that there's good reason why I care so much about Songs for Jenny and the Songs for Jenny CD. But truthfully, I've really tried as hard as I can to make all of the different drummers relevant to the topic where, where it makes sense, where it's possible to do so. But I've also tried, you know, much more loosely, of course, to make the promotions work with the topic as well. Because this isn't advertising per se. There's not even really a quid pro quo relationship between me and these other podcasts. Inappropriate conversations is all about me saying, hey, here's some things I think, here's some things I struggle with, and here's some things I like. And among the things I like are a lot of these shows. If you're a promo on this show, it's a podcast I listen to. And it seems only appropriate that maybe for this particular moment, when I need to break the topic, I need to take a breath myself and kind of refocus and shift gears a little bit, I'm going to play a promo for a sci-fi podcast, except this time instead of Starbase 66, I'm going to play the Anomaly podcast because the Anomaly podcast prides itself on being the sci-fi topic from a particularly female perspective. And frankly, as a man addressing this topic, looking at things from a distinctly female perspective is kind of what it's all about. Here's Anomaly. Alrighty then. <laughs> Anomaly. Something that deviates from what is standard, normal, or expected. An oddity. Peculiarity, irregularity, inconsistency, incongruity, a rarity. I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And we're the socially functional co-hosts 
of Anomaly, the podcast with a unique perspective, a female perspective on all things geek. Star Trek, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Buffy, Firefly, gaming, books, costuming, and general geek topics. The sometimes monthly, but always entertaining Anomaly Podcast. Anomalypodcast.com. It's the end of the party. One of the things I like best about the English beat is they've got a song called The End of the Party, and it describes the moment in the song where a male character realizes that he's not getting the girl. But in this case, The End of the Party works for me because I I had already gotten the girl. Uh, We went to this party as a double date. Me, this future friend of mine, and the guy she was dating uh, as a first date, I believe, and, of course, my fiancé. Yeah, my fiancé and I had a solid relationship. I mean, I kind of knew really very early on in our relationship that there was a a big forever factor, I guess would be the way I would word that. So you got a very stable relationship I'm in, a very unstable relationship that this woman and and, and a mutual friend of ours were in, unstable in the sense that it was new, that it was different, and that it was probably going to be temporary uh, by all accounts, truthfully. And in the course of having a conversation, it dawns on me that I'm kind of the most sober guy in the room. You know, my wife being the next, my future wife being the next most sober person in the room, and everyone else has had too much. And so what we tried to do is we, we got back from the party that we'd been at where I was the designated driver. And so I'm hanging out in the living room, I'm playing some tunes, and we're really just trying to keep everybody there. Because my mission was to say, maybe we keep everybody here long enough to make the proposal that no one drives home, that we, we crash, we spend, we spend the night here. I had an available bed because of the way my roommates were managing their weekend. My wife, of course, had room over at her apartment. So there were ways that we could have accommodated these people. And it, it required hanging out just a little longer and having a bit of a conversation to find out whether they were really safe to drive home, whether they were open to being driven home, or what. In the midst of the conversation, it got to some talk about religion, some talk about friendship, some talk about relationships and, you know, some esoteric stuff talks about. And, and that's when we, we kind of brought up some of the ski lift kind of conversation. You know, the, how ironic it was that she had this bizarre incident over the break where I'd had a, a very overwhelming fear that that might be me, that I could have been in the same situation. And, and so we're talking about this. And the dialogue kind of moved in a weird direction. And I'm going to try to take you there to the best my memory will allow. I said something like this. There's a lot of people who credit intuition with the sense that they should get to know someone. You know, again, if it's not a sexual thing, if it's a friendship thing, what's the quality in the friendship that attracts, you know, because when you're approaching somebody from across a crowded room to ask her to dance, it's a physical assessment that's probably driving that more often than not. If if you're a man, I apologize to women who may not have the same, who may not have the same thought process, but that's kind of how men work. But if it's not that, if it's a friendship thing, what's behind it? And most people probably say that it's, it's intuition, that that's what tells them what to do. And I said, you know, just as often as intuition, I credit that with faith, that when you open yourself up to love someone the way God loves them, this is the agape kind of love I'm talking about here, there's a great deal you can learn about that person even before you meet, and maybe just a little, maybe just a sense of that person's joy or the sense of that person's concern, something that makes you think that there ought to be a connection. Now, again, this is a college-age audience in a, in a university setting, in a Friday-Saturday night party kind of atmosphere. You'd think somebody would have disagreed with me. I guarantee if one of my roommates had been there, he would have disagreed with me. But before any of that could happen, this woman spoke up, this you know, person that would become a good friend of mine. She got a look on her face that I will never forget as long as I live. 
And she said to me, with my fiance sitting there and her her date sitting next to her, draped all over, as a matter of fact, she says to me, you don't know how much I wish I was someone you loved like that. You don't know how much I wish I was someone you loved like that. Now, there's a bigger story here, and that bigger story I'll save for another day, because that bigger story is far more religious than anything I intended to talk about in this particular context. But it, it's enough to explain why I started saying, okay, this is a little bit more than I was expecting to have. I can make a connection between sitting in this apartment in the month of August saying something big's going to happen here. I just don't know when. And then getting back to that apartment in, in the month of January and saying, wow, I can't believe I was so afraid of falling off a ski lift that that premonition was so real and it didn't happen. How weird. And then coming here to this, this February setting, maybe a month later, and having that conversation with the person who actually did fall off the ski lift, it was enough for me to say, maybe I had actually do some reading. Now, I wasn't a psychology major, but being a journalism major gives you a lot of power in terms of the way you manage your collegiate career, because a good journalism school will tell its students, you are going to get a core amount of courses. We're going to cover news writing. We're going to cover editing. We're going to cover layout and design. We're going to have you work on the school newspaper as much as you possibly can. But we also want you to take other classes, because if you don't know anything, what are you going to write about? So I took a lot of science courses and got um, degrees, minor degrees in political science and in uh, religious studies and studied a lot of English, did a lot of film studies, you know, try to invest myself in the things I was interested in. But psychology wasn't one of them. So when I actually did go out and get some answers that I thought might provide a psychological explanation for the things that I'd experienced, and now that this woman was experiencing, because she was clearly having the same kind of visions, the same kind of thought process was driving her to be in that situation. I mean, this is the first time we'd actually really done a whole lot socially together, this double date. So when I finally got some answers, surprise, surprise, the information came from Carl Jung. And this is the information that I actually did convey to her, I'll abridge quite a bit, but this is how I communicated. All the texts that I gave, that I'm going to talk about here for the next few minutes, are from Carl Jung, published in 1946, in a, in a book called The Phenomenology of the Self, Ion, and the actual chapter that I really pulled most of my information from, The Syzygy, Anima and Animus. So most of this, short of my annotative dialogue, will be quoted straight from Jung. This image is my lady soul, as Spittler called her. I have suggested instead the term anima as indicating something specific for which the expression soul is too general and too vague. The empirical reality summed up under the concept of anima forms an extremely dramatic content of the unconscious. It is possible to describe this content in rational scientific language. The projection-making factor is the anima, or rather the unconscious as represented by the anima. Whenever she appears in dreams, visions, and fantasies, she takes on a personified form, thus demonstrating that the factor she embodies possesses all the outstanding characteristics of a feminine being. She is not an invention of the conscious, but a spontaneous product of the unconscious, nor is she a substitute for the figure of the mother. On the contrary, there is every likelihood that the numinous qualities which make the mother imago so dangerously powerful derive from the collective archetype of the anima which is incarnate anew in every male child. Numinous here is a reference to uh, having a deeply mystical or spiritual effect. What matters most is the concept that the soul of every man possesses all the outstanding characteristics of a feminine being. Of course, the point of view is not sexist, or at least not as sexist as you might expect from the World War II era. This is me speaking. Here's Young. 
Since the anima is an archetype that is found in men, it is reasonable to suppose that an equivalent archetype must be present in women. For just as the man is compensated by a feminine element, so woman is compensated by a masculine one. I do not, however, wish this argument to give the impression that these compensatory relationships were arrived at by deduction. On the contrary, long and varied experience was needed in order to grasp the nature of anima and animas empirically. Whatever we have to say about these archetypes, therefore, is either directly verifiable or at least rendered probable by the facts. At the same time, I am fully aware that we are discussing pioneer work, which by its very nature can only be provisional. Greg speaking would say years later, feels like we're in that same provisional place. And in a way, Young explains why. Here he says, It is easier to gain insight into the shadow than into anima or animus. With the shadow, we have the advantage of being prepared in some sort by our education, which has always endeavored to convince people that they are not 100% pure gold. So everyone immediately understands what is meant by shadow or inferior personality, what I used to call the little man on my shoulder, Greg speaking. And if he has forgotten, his memory can easily be refreshed by a Sunday sermon, his wife, or the tax collector. With the anima and animus, however, things are by no means so simple. Firstly, there is no moral education in this respect. And secondly, most people are content to be self-righteous and prefer mutual vilification, if nothing worse, to the recognition of their projections. Indeed, it seems a very natural state of affairs. Although there are, in my experience, a fair number of people who can understand without special intellectual or moral difficulties what is meant by anima and animus, one finds very many more who have the greatest trouble in visualizing these empirical concepts as anything concrete. This shows that they fall a little outside the usual range of experience. They are unpopular precisely because they seem unfamiliar. The consequence is that they mobilize prejudice and become taboo like everything else that is unexpected. Speaking as Greg, I would say the question is not so much unexpectedness as being misunderstood. It depends on where the prejudice comes from. Is Young referring to prejudice with regard to an object of ego identification or with regard to a witness of mutual ego identification? I have, of course, seen both types of responses, and prejudice is the proper term for both responses. However, he doesn't specify what he means. Not all concerns of the anima and animus are projected. Many of them appear spontaneously, in dreams and so on, and many more can be made conscious through active imagination. In this way, we find that thoughts, feelings, and effects are alive in us which we never would have believed possible. Naturally, possibilities of this sort seem utterly fantastic to anyone who's not experienced them himself, for a normal person, quote, knows what he thinks, unquote. Such a childish attitude on the part of the normal person is simply the rule, so that no one without experience in this field can be expected to understand the real nature of anima and animus. With these reflections, one gets into an entirely new world of psychological experience, provided, of course, that one succeeds in realizing it in practice. Those who do not succeed can hardly fail to be impressed by all that the ego does not know and has never known. This increase in self-knowledge is still very rare nowadays, and it is usually paid for in advance with a neurosis, if not with something worse. Now, Young said that few people came to know their anima-animus um, relationships nowadays in 1946, but I don't think that things are any better today. And in my case, I don't know that I would necessarily say that I paid for it with a neurosis, but I only later discovered from Young's perspective what I might have been experiencing all along that did include fatigue 
and disturbing visions. Specifically, what he is saying here is that knowledge stems from self-knowledge, which equals an awareness of anima. So at this point, I told my old friend that I didn't know if she remembered the event clearly because she'd had a lot to drink then, and it became known among my circle of friends as Revelation Weekend. But I told her that you embarrassing me at that party by telling the people in the room how much you thought I knew, that um, I tried to belittle the inevitable egotism that could come from that, and I was even more uncomfortable by my awareness that knowledge stems from self-knowledge and that I had gained an incredible amount of self-knowledge from the reflection of anima that she had offered to me. So I guess what I said was, well, you know, you learn a lot from the people you love. And her response was, you know, well, I've already shared it. I hope I'm one of those people that you love and learn from. I was going to quote The Shadow, but instead of quoting more from Young, allow me to summarize. The Shadow is a moral problem that challenges the entire ego personality. That is Young's basic principle. To me, it is a same-sex ego identification because it is made conscious and it requires a natural awareness of the individual's moral dilemma. For example, the little man on my shoulder has an understanding of sexual situations that didn't go well for me that a female friend never could have. You would have to feel sexual feelings that as a female friend you wouldn't in this case. But then as Jung has mentioned, this doesn't make the reflection of anima in any way inferior to the reflection of shadow. In fact, anima is superior in every way because it can bring an understanding of the encounter from an objectivity that I would never have from me or even sharing with a male friend or even sharing with a father or a brother. A woman would bring a perspective that a man simply couldn't have. Let me offer a couple final quotes from Young. Recapitulating, I should like to emphasize that the integration of the shadow or the realization of the personal unconscious marks the first stage in the analytical process and that without it, a recognition of anima and animus is impossible. The shadow can only be realized through a relation to a partner, and anima and animus only through a relation to a partner of the opposite sex, because only in such relation do their projections become operative. He concludes this thought by making reference to the religious correlation available in self-knowledge. It surprised me when I read it at first and offered insights into my choice of God as a relayer and a trigger for what would be Revelation Weekend. That sense that if God's telling Oral Roberts to build a hospital, then certainly he can tell me that I'm going to finally solve the mystery of the visions that I was having, going all the way back to the beginning of the school year. Here's what Young says. The self, on the other hand, is a God imago, or at least cannot be distinguished from one. Of this, the early Christian spirit was not ignorant. Otherwise, Clement of Alexandria could never have said that he who knows himself knows God. Clearly, this also provides a correlation to how we can prove the existence of God. I won't go into great detail here, but we know God exists through faith, just like we know we exist through intuition. More importantly, it clearly underscores self-knowledge. I have grown so much and learned so much because I finally broke through my defense mechanisms enough to ask serious questions about my soul. To ask, in a sense, what am I really like? Some people never ask those questions or even ridicule the thought. However, Jung would say that in the process of being quote-unquote normal, those people never get far enough along, never really thought enough to realize that you have to answer that question in the process of answering the biggest questions about life, love, and related to the two, religion. I compare it to a parable of a pond. A person asks, what am I like? His shadow guides him to a pond and points. In another place and time, I might have left thinking, I am like water. This time, though, I saw the reflection. 
The notion seems dumb now to a society of people who vainly adorn their lives with mirrors. The parable still has validity, though. After all, how often do people really see themselves in mirrors? Rarely, I'd say. Usually they see hair or a face or fat or skin. Isn't that the same thing as seeing water? If you took a moment each day to look into a mirror the way you were able to look into my life, you'd know what I mean. It's the part of love that makes life vital. If you like food and talking about food, then why not listen to Crimes Against Food with Mia Steele and me, Gloria Lind. You can find us on simplysyndicated.com or download through iTunes. Listen, I know it. No one needs to tell me that I took us in a strange direction here for this particular inappropriate conversation. Think about how you might react if somebody had said in writing or even in person to you that if you took a moment each day to look into a mirror the way you look into my life, you'd know what I mean. You might have to ask yourself how you would deal with that. It's just kind of one of the things about this particular kind of friendship. It's unmistakably odd. It falls completely afoul of any 1950s idea we might have had about how people are supposed to interact with each other. But I also think you can see how this particular kind of friendship functions at a level where sexual behavior just makes no sense whatsoever. And it's only by actually being able to take some of that whole, some of the dating and marital formula out of the mix and say, okay, you're not part of my family, uh, even from a stepsister perspective. You're not a future spouse or even a you know, one-night stand, you're something different. And I've long felt that if we have this kind of friendship functioning in our society, our society will instantly become healthier because we'll have more people talking to people that they need to hear from, more people learning and growing from people who actually have the ability to show them the reflection they need to see to develop as people. And we'll have better sexual health as a society because we'll be kicking the right people out of the sack and still engaging in loving relationships that have the potential to be meaningful with a capital M. If you have a different perspective, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com and comments are enabled at the Podbean site for inappropriate conversations.podbean.com. Next week, I'm going to turn this on its head and look at things from a distinctly masculine perspective. This week, a masculine perspective on femininity. Next week, I'm going to talk about the weakness in the masculine model that we have today. Thanks for listening.
music by Kevin McLeod.